Hello friends, if we haven't met, I'm Colin Stoddard, I'm the executive pastor of New Life East. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I hope you had a great Christmas and are enjoying some time with your family. Today, we're gonna talk about Christmas. It's a shocker. And the events that are surrounding the birth of Jesus, God becoming man, the event which we know as the incarnation. Grab your Bibles, we're gonna look at a lot of scripture to, together today, and then we'll also be taking communion later in our time, so you can pause this and grab your elements, and then we'll take them together. With that, let's just jump into our text from John 1. We'll start at verse five, follow along with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. God, thank you. God, I thank you for the word of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for you. I thank you that today we acknowledge and we celebrate the time where you came and you made your dwelling on this earth, Lord. Open our eyes to see truths in this text, in this scripture today. Amen. The word, what does John mean when he says the word? John simply is talking about Jesus, God's confirmation of himself. And what is it that the word did? He came down and dwelt among us. You know, at Christmas time we sing about Jesus. We sing carols and we tell stories about Jesus as the person of God coming to earth. But the interesting thing is, is that this is not the first time that God appeared to man on earth. There are four previous times in scripture that we're gonna look at today and think about some of the significance and the similarities around these encounters. The first time that I wanna draw our attention to is in the book of Genesis chapter 18. And before we jumped into the text, um, you, you remember this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God decided that he was going to destroy the city because of the sinfulness and the wickedness of this city. But the problem is that Lot lived in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot was Abraham's nephew. And so Abraham decides to intercede on behalf of his nephew Lot. And this is where we pick up the story, Genesis 18. Follow along with me. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Abraham proceeds to negotiate with God, asking God to not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah to spare the life of Lot. And what fascinates me about this story is that God answers his request and he spares Lot's life. He grants Abraham's request. And some of you are in this place today where you are pleading with God, you're asking him to move. And this encounter with Abraham, uh, with God shows us that the presence of God and the act of intercession are really closely related. So when we are engaging in intercession, God is present. The second time I wanna draw our attention to is a little further ahead in the book of Genesis 32, and you know the story is when Jacob wrestles 
with God, Jacob has been estranged from his brother Esau for many years. Um, if you remember, Jacob stole his brother Esau's birthright and they are, they're estranged. And so Jacob is preparing to see him for the first time in a long time and he sends many gifts ahead to Esau. He sends the rest of his family ahead. And then before he is about to cross the river to see his brother Esau, a man encounters him, approaches him. This man is God. And this is where we find him on the scene. Genesis 32, we'll start at uh, 22. Follow along with me or 25, follow along with me. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and the humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. This is a definitely an odd interaction that we read about in scripture. And it's, and it's fascinating because it, it really shows this, that Jacob is terrified to meet his brother Esau. Really, he's scared for his life. But for whatever reason, God engages with Jacob in this moment of wrestling and this place of fear. And this story really gives us permission to wrestle with God. And when we emerge from our wrestling with God, we emerge marked spiritually. Jacob walked with a limp and God changed his name. So when we are in times of struggle, we encounter God and we emerge on the other side of it very differently. The third time I wanna draw our attention to where God appears to man is in the book of Joshua, chapter five, verse 13. You know this story, this is when Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And Joshua's preparing for this battle. He doesn't yet know how he's gonna take the city. He hasn't been told that he's gonna walk around the city walls seven times. But as, as he's preparing, he has this encounter, which you follow along with me. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy and Joshua did so. We're describing here a time where Joshua is about to face uh, a great fear He's gonna have an act of great courage and great bravery. And, and he's, of course, he's undoubtedly afraid. And for me, in times of great conflict, perhaps with a family member or a friend, this is a time where I wanna know whose side God is on. Is he on my side? Is he gonna, is he gonna fight for me? Am I gonna be the one that wins when I emerge from this? But the interesting thing, when Joshua approaches the commander of the Lord's army, this person of God who's appearing to him, God doesn't tell him that he's gonna win the battle. He doesn't even tell him whose side he's on. He said, he said, I'm not on your side, I'm not on any side, but the place that you're standing is holy ground. What we can learn from this is that, that when, you are needing, when you're needing courage, when you're about to face a time when you need bravery, this is the instance that God shows up and his presence is enough for you. God says, you're standing on holy ground and I'm here. The fourth time is also a story that I know that you will know. It's the story of the fiery furnace when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
decide not to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar decrees that everyone should bow down and worship him. And if you didn't, then you know the answer. You would get thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, these three men refused. They worshiped God alone. And so we come upon them in this story uh, directly after the king had thrown them into the furnace. This is in Daniel. Follow along with me. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the, o the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors, everyone in, that was there at the time crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. See, you guys, God comes to us in times of persecution as well. So be encouraged. If you are in a time of intercession where you're asking God to come through for you, if you're engaged in a time of wrestling or you're in the moment that requires great courage when you're being persecuted, would you open your eyes and look for Jesus? Would you look for God to appear to you in these struggles? Spurgeon has a quote about these encounters and he says this, Jesus Christ does not appear to his saints every day. He did not come to see Jacob till he was in affliction. He did not visit Joshua before he was about to be engaged in a righteous war. It is only in extraordinary seasons that Christ thus manifests himself to his people. So we fast forward now to this encounter where Jesus comes to the earth. And what makes this different, this appearance of God, what makes this different from these ones that we just reviewed? Well, we, we started our text in John chapter one with in the beginning. And John is a, such an intentional writer. We just came out of the book of Revelation. And you remember so much of how John writes. And so much of, so much of it is, is so poetic. But when we read in the beginning, that should remind you of something that you've heard before. And we have. We've read about that in Genesis when there was a physical creation. We read in the beginning. But what we read in John, that John is explaining a, recre a recreation through the birth of Jesus, he's, he's redefining, he's creating a new reality. And we know about this new reality from the, from the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes about it in chapter five, verse 13 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. An interesting thing about Jesus being born on earth is that this time is so different because this is not an appearance of God like we read in these other encounters, but this is God becoming a man. This is God as a man. And we have so much to learn about the why and the when and the where of this encounter. And I want to focus on, on all three of these and then camp out on the where for a while. But we're going to start with why. Why would God do this? Why would he come and take on flesh and dwell among us? You probably know the, the, the famous verse in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He came to save us. And the other reason that, that God came as Jesus is so that we would know what God looks like. 
so that we would have an example and we would have an image of God that we could relate to and that we could understand. The when surrounding these events, Jesus came is so fascinating to me and I wanna look at this for a second. Revelations 13 verse eight says this, that God had planned for the arrival of his son before he even created the earth. Jesus coming was a, his plan of salvation. He didn't make this up as he was going. The whole plan of Jesus' entry into the earth had been planned before the earth had even been created. Something else that's so interesting about the when is that the other gospels give us the genealogy and the, the lineage of Jesus that tells us who are the people that Jesus came from and it tells us so much about him. In the Bible times, someone's lineage was like their resume and it could be uh, modified kind of like we would do today. We would leave out the bad parts, maybe we would embellish the good parts so that we could lead people to think of certain things about ourselves. I'm sure that some of you are guilty of doing that even when you're about to apply for a job. But the interesting thing about this lineage is that none of the bad parts are left out. For instance, in a patriarchal society, women were never mentioned in a in the lineage and the genealogies, but what's interesting about Jesus's lineage is that there are five women that are listed, and these women um, were also non-Jews. They were Canaanite, Moabite women. And in Bible times, Canaanites and Moabites were considered unclean. They were unable to worship in the tabernacle, and the law of Moses excluded these people from the presence of God, yet they are publicly acknowledged as ancestors of Jesus. If you look through all of the ancestors that led to Jesus, you see a pattern of brokenness, of prostitutes. You see so many people who are so broken, and, and this would encourage us. If you look back at Pastor Andrew's message from a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Andrew talked about shepherds and how Jesus came first to the outsiders. And what we learn from Jesus' lineage is that not only did Jesus come to the outsiders, but he came from the outsiders. So if you have a broken past or you look at your family history and you say, what good can come of this? Well, the birth of Jesus should show us that he can be birthed from anything and he can use anybody. But where I want for us to end, camp out on with this event of the incarnation of God taking on flesh and making his dwelling among us is the location of where he chose to do this. Location matters to God, and we learn about this little town of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. You've heard the song before. From Micah 5, chapter 2 is where we see this in the Old Testament as a prophecy of where Jesus would be born to. Read this with me. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The King James Version says this about Bethlehem in the same verse. The translation reads that Bethlehem is little among the thousands of Judah. Guys, Bethlehem is a little town. It's insignificant. And there are so many more prominent places that Jesus could have been born from. He could have been born in one of the many palaces of Jerusalem. He could have been born on the Bashan's high hill or Hebron's royal mount, but no. It's the little insignificant town of Bethlehem. As small and insignificant as the town of Bethlehem is, it's an important location in Jewish history. It would have been known as the city of kings to many of the Jewish readers. 
And there are several other historical instances that we read about that happen in Bethlehem that set up this idea that Jesus would be born there. And here are a few that I wanted to draw your attention to. It's the place where Rachel died after giving birth to Bethlehem. The tribe of Benjamin was, um, I'm sorry, it's where Rachel died after giving birth to Benjamin. She didn't give birth to a town. Uh, Ruth, it's also the place where Ruth and Boaz were married. And this was a marriage between a Jew and a Gentile, which also was a foretelling of how Jesus would come to unite both Jews and Gentiles and come for both of them. And then this is also the place where David was anointed king. And so there was so much anticipation and, and expectation of the place of Bethlehem. There's also tremendous significance in the name of Bethlehem. There's so many details which just fascinate me, but the, the literal translation of Bethlehem is house of bread. This is one of the, the, the ways that Jesus describes himself in John 6.35, you know this. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The second part of the name Bethlehem Ephrathah translates house of the sword or to split and divide a wine press or even ashes or what's left after something is burned up. You also know that this is one of the ways that Jesus described himself. And we see this in Isaiah 53 verse 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Can't believe the symbolism in all these things. There's so much intentionality in this event of the incarnation of Jesus coming to dwell among us. There's something else to note that I think is so fascinating when we see the where and the when of how these two events collided into each other is that Mary and Joseph, who were the parents of Jesus, of course, they didn't even live in Bethlehem at the time that he was born. They lived in Nazareth. And we know that Caesar Augustus decreed while they were living there that every man returned to his hometown so that they could be counted in the census and that they could also pay their taxes. And so we see that at this random time, as far as we know, that Caesar decreed that this would happen. Bethlehem has been prophesied that this is where the Messiah would come from, but the Messiah and his parents aren't even living there. So it's in the ninth month of Mary's pregnancy that they now make this voyage to Bethlehem for him to be born. And what, what this shows us is that, that there is no timing that's out of God's hand. When he needs something to happen, he will, he will take care of it. He will, he will make sure that it happens in the right place at the right time. He is in control of it. And Spurgeon says this about the timing and the decree, but why should Caesar Augustus think of it just at this particular time? Simply because while man deviseth his way, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. It was Caesar's whim, but it was God's decree. Ultimately, God was in control of all of these details. So my question for you today is simply this. What is your Bethlehem? Um, what is the place in your life where you are feeling little among the thousands of Judah? Can you relate to this for a second? Where is the place where you have great expectation in your life, where you have been asking God to come to restore something that, that you need to him to be born out of, but you would expect that he wouldn't do it because this place is so little. We started out our time talking about how God appears 
in places of great struggle, when we're interceding, when we're wrestling, when in times of great courage is needed and through persecution. And this is an invitation in the place of Bethlehem to recognize that the hardships in our lives are entry points for the presence of God to become manifest in our present circumstances. And really to learn to say thank you for loving us enough to come. I love when we have this context of the, the city and the little town of Bethlehem. You know the song, but the last line in the carol, the first verse of the carol says this, that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And so in Bethlehem in the story, we know that that's Jesus, the physical birth of Jesus being born from Bethlehem. But also, this is in your life, that, there are, that, that God is in control of this, that he is, he is creating a Bethlehem in you so that he can be born from this circumstance. And with this in our hearts, this is how we come to communion, to the table. And it's through the blood and the bread of Christ that the church, and now your homes, become a Bethlehem because what we hold in our hand here is the promise that Christ died and he came and that he will, he will rise again. So would you gather the communion elements in your home and uh, I'm going to pray over you and then we will, we will take these together. Lord, I pray, God, that all of us think, as we're thinking about this, Lord, as we're contemplating the, inten the intentionality with which you came to earth, Lord, that we know that you are in control. God, of the timing of our lives. And God, you are creating a moment, Lord, in history for us where you are gonna be, you're gonna be born through these circumstances that we are in. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, as we are here on this third day of Christmas, Lord, that you would, that you would come, Lord, that you would be Jesus Emmanuel, Christ in us, Lord, that we would see you as the one who has come and are working in these hard circumstances in our lives, Lord. May you open our eyes to see you more clearly through them. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And when, when Jesus met with his disciples, he said, every time you, you are together, would you do this in remembrance of me? Let's take the bread together. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup and he said, when you meet, do this together in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. My friends, thank you for, for watching, for engaging with us today. We can't wait to see you next weekend.